102.3 WHIV in New Orleans and broadcasting around the world at whivfm.org. This is Health is a Human Right radio show. Protecting people like yourself I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth Tra-la-la-la Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIVLPFM, and thank you uh, to uh, Adele and, and Shannon for the Purple Shout Show, which was the inaugural uh, show. I think you guys did a great job. Uh, today, uh, we have a really busy schedule, so we're going to just jump right into things. It's really an honor and pleasure to have back on air uh, Mr. Uh, Stephen Ruther, who is the Executive Director of the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, Norley. I am a graduate of the 2014 class, which I like to um, uh, which I like to say we were the most popular class. All the other classes say they were the best class, and we just were like, yeah, whatever, we're the most popular class. So, Stephen, I know there's some deadlines coming up, and I know that there's some things that we need to talk about real quick. So do you want to kind of lead us through what Norley is? Yeah, sure. So we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and um, we've been in existence for just under 20 years. We put on this leadership program that represents and covers a 10-parish geographic area in southeast Louisiana. And so uh, what we do is we bring together leaders from the nonprofit, um, the public sector, the private sector. We bring together this great uh, conglomeration of individuals who all get together. And um, there's an opening retreat, a closing retreat. And then in between those, we have seven independent sessions where we discuss issues that most impact the greater New Orleans region and uh, really Louisiana as a whole. So we focus on um, health care, education, public policy, uh, environment, sustainability, criminal justice, economic development, and um, a whole slew, obviously, there's a whole uh, slew of issues that go along when you discuss any single one of those. Sure. And so we try to unpack those and uh, strategically discuss them in a way that is um, open, honest, uh, certainly challenging, but um, hopefully gets the class excited and uh hopefully puts them in a place where they have a greater civic understanding and be able to go out and do something positive on the other end of it. One of the things that I know that Norley's committed to, maybe you can comment on, is how you make sure that the classes uh, and the faces and the voices of the classes are really reflective of Louisiana. Yeah, so absolutely. So we um, we really stand on our uh, valuation of diversity, and, and by that we mean not just um, the sort of typical uh, things that you would look at, like race, gender, ethnicity. Um, but we look at, again, having representation from across industries, across uh, different entities around the greater New Orleans region. Uh, and certainly the geography plays into a large part of that. Um, when you look at 
all the work that different organizations are doing, a lot of times it's not balanced against, well, what would be the perspective from Plaquemines Parish or St. Charles Parish or Washington Parish? Um, I think it's easy for us to focus on New Orleans because New Orleans is kind of the, the heartbeat of the region. But obviously there are so many great areas who have great resources and assets that help inform that conversation, that discussion. And so we really value all those different perspectives. And um, we consider ourselves a nonpartisan platform, especially in this day and age where you have particularly divisive personalities uh, and, and things going on in the world around us. We view ourselves as a, as a nonpartisan platform to be able to bring together uh, diverse viewpoints, diverse experiences, and again, just hopefully be able to have honest conversations without judgment um, where we can all learn from one another, certainly understand uh, without judgment other people's uh, positions and um, take that, you know, assimilate that into our own thoughts and um, make us better leaders in the course of what we do. Now, I know you guys have some deadlines coming up. Do you want to explain that? Yes. So we are currently accepting applications for our nine-month leadership program, which we've been talking about. Uh, the deadline to apply is this Friday, uh, May 31st. And to do that, uh, it's a 100% online application. You, could, you can go to norley.org. And we have uh, a link where you can just click on it. It says apply, and it's a really easy uh, online form. We do ask for some letters of recommendation. We do ask some questions and things like that. It's competitive. But, um, it is a competitive program. We accept approximately 45 individuals, and um, in any given year, we'll usually get about twice as many individuals applying. And again, um, it's often we have to unfortunately turn away people, not because of a deficiency of their uh, application, but just because of the fact that when we look at all those different uh, parameters that we're trying to make sure that we have representation from, again, that really uh, valuing the diversity of the class and the value of inputs, um, sometimes we have fantastic individuals who we have to wait list essentially for a year. But that deadline is this Friday, uh, May 31st. And that's Norley, N-O-R-L-I. Dot org. And, and folks that are listening, I, you know, I, I actually was in the class in 2014 and, and I actually initially did not think that for me, speaking personally, I didn't think that Norley was initially for me because there was a lot of folks from the business sector and the banking sector and the education sector. And I just didn't feel like there was a space for me. But as soon as I started, uh, it was clear that there was definitely a, a space for me. So if you're a leader uh, and a, a leader in kind of whatever area of thought that you're in, really please consider uh, uh, applying for Norley. It really does take all voices. It does take all faces and all types of different folks that are you know, that are interested in in providing a voice for a community they represent. Now, one of the things about Norley, of course, is that it is a, an entity, it's a nonprofit, so there is a bit of a tuition, but they do have tuition waivers. And maybe, Stephen, do you want to talk about the possibility? Are, are, you still yeah, have tuition so, waivers, right? Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> you what we at have, me. so we don't do 100% tuition. Got waiver, it. Okay, so there's a change. Uh, scholarships. We do offer tuition support, and um, that's part of the application. As you're clicking through it, we do have a question that asks, um, would you be interested in pursuing that? And if you are, you just click on it, you fill out some information, and um, that in no way impacts uh, whether or not you're selected for the program. That's something that after the fact we try to figure out to accommodate uh, everyone's requests 
um, to the best of our abilities. Right. Again, and so again, the application uh, is uh, is uh, due on uh, at the end of this week on Friday. Uh, so that's norley uh, org. I know, Stephen. One more thing that we should talk about is that if folks are uh, if they don't make it into the class this year, uh, that there are different things that you do during the year beyond just the regular Norley classes that you guys sponsor. Yeah, absolutely. And so a large part of what we want to do is for the individuals who either go through the program or are looking to apply in future years is to provide additional opportunities to become involved in the community in the 10 parish region and um, become more knowledgeable on various issues that impact us. So um, we have some things coming up actually in August, August 29th. Uh, we have a Women's Equality Summit. This is the first year that we're doing it. It'll be a half-day summit, and we're still working out the details. But again, if you go to our website or if you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, we'll have information on that as well. But that'll be the Women's Equality Summit, and we're actually doing that in partnership with the New Orleans Chamber of Commerce. And then we have a full-day policy conference, which we call Fusion, and that will be October 24th this year at the Pan American Life Conference Center. And um, we'll be talking about the topic of workforce development. So we'll have individuals working in that space, um, both at the parish and regional level, as well as at the state um, level. And we'll have some national speakers coming in as well, as that's a major issue sure. uh, for everybody. Where is the Pan American? So that's actually on Poydras. Is that the um, new, is that the, is that the is that the old World Trade Center? Or that, no, 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 no. So, what am I thinking? No, about? so it's on Poydras. Um, actually, more Sparts offices are on the first floor, and they have some. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. So it's a okay. great building. And, sure. Uh, I believe it's the eleventh floor. Got but it. Anyway, we, got if it, you got go it. to our website, it's all there. And so the website for that event is norleyfusion.com. But if you go to norley.org, we have everything linked up there. Right. Again, folks, I, I actually did the Norley class of 2014 and it was something that I was very grateful that I did. Uh, I, uh, for me, uh, bringing the, uh, activist voice, uh, to that community, I think was very important. Uh, I, I brought a voice in that space that, um, that I thought that served other people very well. And I've met lifelong friends uh, in, in that class. So again, uh, please consider going to N-O-R-L-I, that's norley.org, and the application is due at the uh, end of this week. And you heard that there is some tuition relief uh, in the form of scholarships, uh, and, uh, uh, and we would love to uh, have you apply. The, the Norley community and the Norley family is one that I think that we should all be proud uh, that Stephen actually has done an amazing job really kind of building out so thank you so much for appearing Stephen, and, and uh, please you. you are always welcome on air thank you i appreciate it thank you that's norley.org such a pleasure Stephen. thank you so much it is a pleasure uh now uh to uh bring on uh, miss phyllis jordan uh we have had her on in the past uh and she's here to talk to us a bit about uh the uh symphony book fair. symphony book fair right. and right. i know because all of the proceeds go to the louisiana philharmonic Correct. orchestra hence the name symphony right. book fair right. although you know in the old days um they were the symphony. We were the symphony. You know, when they changed their name, I just couldn't change the book fair name. Cause <laughs> yeah, of course, there. you guys were ready to stop. Right. They they could they could do that they something could do that, like yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so tell us when the book fair is. Absolutely, it starts this Friday, May thirty first. Goes through uh, June first and second. Uh, the first six hours of the first day, on Friday, we do charge fifteen dollars to come in. That's because we attract a lot of book dealers and serious book collectors who are they're willing to pay for that first selection. Uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, it goes to free, 
and it's free for the rest of the So the these year. are people who like actually they pick through books and they find they know what's valuable. Correct. They can see the first edition of something. Right. So they're like treasure hunting to a it's, certain that's degree. Right. That's right. right. And we purposefully price our books, well, very low in any case, but even books that are very valuable, we price to give them margin right. to make their businesses work. Right. Okay. So, and then, of course, this works why they would pay $15 that's right. That's right. to come in. It's a good right. deal. Right, right. I see. So <laughs> it's, like, right person. it's like first edition of Edgar Allan Poe's, like the Telltale Heart. Well, that the, there is somewhere in that room going to be a first edition of uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. Right. And then <laughs> no, that'll be... I found and, it. And somebody can pick that, and, yeah. and that is it's like, it's like a treasure hunt. That's right. That's so right. again, so it starts this weekend. Correct. May correct. 31st. Right. right. At the UNO Lakefront Arena. Right. And besides these, you know, nice valuable books, we also have every kind of book you can imagine. We have 50 50 different categories, regular fiction, sci-fi, mystery, science, history, children's, teacher's aides, literary arts, all kinds of things. Right. And it's all broken up into different sections. Absolutely. And so people just basically will go through and kind of, kind of go through the boxes or the crates or whatever. Well, actually we, we have a tables tables okay the, the books are all Makes lined it up it's very for... easy to go through and see what the titles are right and um our fiction is not quite alphabetized but it's grouped in four different parts of the alphabet so you can find you know right the author close. you're looking for right, yeah. right and um we have a children's book sale coming up on sunday the last day from noon until three children and, and a parent or grandparent could come in uh we have uh Shopping bags available. The kids can decorate them, and then they and the parent can fill the p- fill the bag for five dollars. So for people who have children or grandchildren, this hold, is- hold on. So this is and this is free to get in at this point. Free to get in. So the only cost to get in is just on Friday. Correct. Uh-huh. Just the first six hours. That's right. Then the after three o'clock, it's free to get mm-hmm. in. Right. And then Saturday and Sunday, it's free to get in. Right. And then on Sunday at from noon to three. Mm-hmm. Uh, bags are going to be given out to to uh, parents, or mm-hmm. and then children can fill that bag and right. with books, with children's books, of, with children's with books, children of books, course. Yeah. Right, and then the, and that whole bag would just sell for five dollars. That's right. That's amazing. That's right. Yeah. Well, we really want to get books into the hands of. people Oh, it's so important. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so important. Yeah. And I, you know, you can read whatever you want to. I, I don't care as right. long as you're reading. Right, right, right. That, that, that's incredibly important. Yeah. And again, all the proceeds uh, go to Louisiana. Correct. F- the We're LPO. an all-volunteer organization, so there's relatively few costs. Got it. Excellent. And then for more information, where can people go? Uh, best thing to do is go on to, to Facebook and go to Symphony Book Fair, and you'll see a lot of information. So Facebook, Symphony Book Fair, mm-hmm. again, this coming uh, Friday, mm-hmm. the 31st, mm-hmm. uh, after 3 o'clock, it's free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on Saturday and Sunday, uh, free as well. Right. Uh, the books are very reasonably priced, very. Uh, and all the monies go to the LPO, the, the Louisiana Philharmonic uh, Orchestra. You've got it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and more information on Facebook, right? That's right. That's That's, right. Thank you so much for thank appearing. And, well, hold on. What do you have here? Well, I have a, a few books to bring. Do you want to just you. quickly just tell okay. us what we have? So I just brought a children's book, which is called Maria Elena and Chiva. Uh-huh. Uh, it is in English, uh, but it's, it's $1.25. Right. And you can see it's in great condition. It's, it's in great condition. Right. Another great book um, is Behind the Forever, the Beautiful Forevers. I don't uh-huh. know you know this book, but it's about um, the garbage picking people of um, you know an Indian city. And it's... An amazing book. It's a fiction or? It's nonfiction. Nonfiction. Yes. Oh, okay. And then I brought the illustrated Rumi. So right. it has beautiful Arabian art in it as well as Rumi's poetry. Right. So 
whatever you're looking for, you're going to find they're, something They're going to find there. it there. Yeah. Huh? Thank you so much. Again, Thank more you. information can be found on Facebook at the Symphony uh, Book Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, coming up uh, this weekend uh, after 3 o'clock on Friday at UNO. Mm-hmm. It will be free, and it's free to the public on Saturday and Sunday. Correct. Thank right. you so Good. much. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. You need to get out. You have to push the button okay. to get out. Great. Thank you so much. All right. And now, uh, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LPFM in New Orleans. This is Noel Matters, Health is a Human Right radio show. WHIV is the only community radio station in the city. I would actually say probably the country, if not maybe even the world. But what do I know? I do tend to exaggerate. No, 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 no. That is dedicated to human rights and social justice. All of our hosts and DJs are volunteers, and we are able to provide quality programming with your support. So please consider becoming a member of WHIV by setting up monthly donations of any amount that you wish. That could be a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars per month, whatever you can do to help. Or make a one-time donation to the station as well. All donations to WHIV are tax deductible, so it's always a pleasure uh, to know that you guys are going to be able to help us out, and then we help you out by giving you a receipt of the money that you actually donate to us. We also have a new line of WHIV t-shirts and tank tops, and they're great for the uh, for the very, very warm uh, spring uh, slash summer uh, weather. So go to whivfm.org and click store or donate. Thank you for supporting WHIV. We are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station. It is really a, a pleasure uh, and honor to have uh, for the next hour, uh, for the next 45 minutes, uh, Mr. Uh, Robert, uh, I guess I didn't ask you, Feisler? Feisler. Feisler. Uh, Robert Feisler, who is the acclaimed debut author of Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. He's also a finalist for the Randy Schilt Award for Gay Nonfiction uh, and Edgar Award in Best Fact Crime. Feisler graduated co-valedictorian of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and is a recipient of the Pulitzer traveling fellowship he lives with his husband in new orleans more information at facebook can be found at robert fiesler on twitter it's word bobby on instagram it's uh word bobby uh as well and also let me just say randy schultz is actually somebody who i admire greatly yeah of course because he wrote the acclaimed book uh and the band played on and the band played on of which of course as an hiv doctor that's uh it was a required reading mm-hmm. uh for me so so robert thank you so much for uh for appearing with us so happy uh, to be here yeah you reached out to me several months ago and i'm so glad we were finally able to get you on air yeah um it's and, special and it's special to be here on memorial day actually yeah uh, the event that we're going to be talking about the upstairs lounge fire a notoriously unsolved arson fire um that took place at a gay bar called the upstairs lounge in 1973 new orleans and claimed 32 lives um of those 32 lives that were claimed um many of them were veterans so it's kind of special to be here today on a day when we recognize veterans yep absolutely and so i guess let's just jump right into it. it it's great that in, in it seems as though in the past five years or either i don't know if maybe my radar was in tune to it or just has there just been i know there's been a documentary or two there's been several books that are written and of course we're here to talk about your book tinderbox sure. but has there just been a greater interest or has there just been a, a just a collective awakening of the yeah. event i think there's been a resurgence in interest and a resurgence in scholarship especially as i think post katrina as the the rest of the United States uh, 
revalued and were reawakened to how important New Orleans was and became more interested in New Orleans history. I think that's one reason. I think a second reason is after, I mean, decriminalization of homosexuality took place only in 2003 with the Supreme Court decision, Lawrence v. Texas. And so we're now at a, at a safe distance. We have a cut. We have a decade plus a few years um, between then and now where I think it's a period of time where we can as historians and scholars look back on just what the institution of the criminal closet uh, for queer folk in America was and what it meant on a practical basis. And then I think the third thing is I think the, I think you're right. The relationship of the upstairs lounge legacy in new Orleans has changed vastly from this sort of arm's length, um, sort of a shameful topic to this open embrace where it is on the map of New Orleans history, certainly, and it's something that people want to talk about. And the thirst and appetite for this subject is absolutely incredible locally. So do you want to just take us through the, uh, you know, the uh, obviously we'll talk. I want to hear about what the premise is of, of, of the book sure. and what's something new that you're bringing. Yeah, to yeah, it, yeah. But, but just take us through the the, the infamous night uh, of the event. Sure. On the night of June 24th, uh, 1973, uh, it was at a ragtag bar on the fringe of New Orleans, famous French Quarter. Uh, called, Which is the, it was the bar, was, bar was called the Upstairs Lounge, and the, the intersection was actually Decatur? Iberville and Charters. Right, Iberville and Charters. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Iberville right. Yeah, Iberville, Every time, it's not Iberville, it's Iberville. I've heard a couple people say Iberville that have a New Orleans accent, so I almost sometimes believe them. But anyway, so on the night of June 24th, uh, 1973, a crowd of about 90 working-class, blue-collar gay men were gathered in a secret second-story gay bar um, on, on an that would that had a great reputation, but it wasn't on a not a very excellent street. Um, in the midst of their revelry and fun, uh, a dissident, an internally conflicted uh, gay for pay hustler, a guy who was occasionally uh, a patron at the upstairs lounge, uh, a guy named Roger Dale Nunez, um, picked a fight, uh, and he was clocked. Uh, in the main bar area, uh, a, the single punch knocked him to the floor and actually broke his jaw. And as he was being pulled up by the bartender and a couple other people at the bar, um, he screamed what, what several people heard as, I'm going to burn you all out. Um, and then several minutes later... And he was kicked out of the bar, he was right? Kick, he was violently ejected, kicking and screaming out of the bar. And uh, it was a second floor, so they had to take him down a set of stairs a set of stairs one single flight of stairs that had served for, you know for all practical purposes this as the sole entrance and exit for a very busy very popular working class gay bar um and then several minutes later a spark was lit um at the bottom of the staircase that everyone had used as their sole access point and exit exit point to their favorite establishment and it built as it went up it turns out everything uh was flammable in right, this they bar. had these long Drape. Like, the, the hall it was had these like long drapes, burlap and, drapes, and you right. have to think about seventies like red flocked uh, wallpaper uh, posters all over the wall were evocative posters of the era. So it was Burt Reynolds lying nude on a bearskin rug, that right. famous cosmopolitan sure. centerfold. Sure. Sure. Mark Spitz, uh, that famous swimmer. swim Olympic swimmer poster of him, um, kind of he's bare torsoed in his speedo, speedo. With, with all of his medals dangling over right. his star spangled speedo. Um, and all of that material, uh, which had brought such joy and revelry to this really special bar, um, went up in flames within seconds as soon as fire entered into the establishment. The carpeting uh, went up in flames, too. A couple people that saw it, it almost looked like it was floating on air because the, the flames went underneath it. Um, and so 
uh, those who were within the bar um, essentially essentially once flames entered um, had only seconds to decide what to do essentially which way to turn um, and uh, those who heard the, the the entreaties the cries really of uh, the bartender of the upstairs lounge and manager this gentleman named Buddy Rasmussen followed him out of trust blankly uh, into into this back room not certain why they were going there so um, it turns out that there was actually another there was an emergency was exit an emergency that buddy that knew only about buddy knew about mm-hmm. and there was no reason why anyone else would know about it and essentially all the lights went out and then smoke was filtering through and, and, and sort of blotting out all of the uh, all of the natural daylight that was going to be in this place and then the emergency exit signs didn't work uh, nothing was working in terms of the fire protection measures at the bar. Turns out this shouldn't be surprising for a, the era and also for a French Quarter, you know, nearby French Quarter establishment. But uh, the bar had not been inspected by a fire inspector for two years, so everything was flammable within. It was a, actually, it turns out, it was a very dangerous place in terms of safety measures. So those who followed Buddy, about uh, thirty-five plus. Uh, men out the out the back entrance uh, lived many completely uninjured or with minimal injuries, um, and those who did not follow Buddy Rasmussen and did the logical thing, what they thought, which was to run as far away from the flames as possible, which were coming in through that front door from uh, from the second uh, second story landing of the staircase into the bar, um, penned themselves in against you know two brick walls um, and burned to death in a mound. A very gruesome one, uh, and in the end, in a fire that burned for less than twenty minutes, uh, in the immediacy of it, twenty-nine lives were claimed, um, and, and the majority of those died uh, within the first few minutes of the fire. It was absolutely gruesome. And one of the gruesome images that you see, and it's it's still hard for me to talk about or even think about, is that um, for reasons that I, I I'm, I'm unclear about, and maybe you can help me understand, mm. is that there were bars that were on the windows, and so as yep. people actually sought the the option of a window to jump out of sure the some of the pictures from the ground floor you could actually see people yep. that were actually that were trapped that against were the trapped bars, against the trying bars to trying to get out and they couldn't get out in the fires and so yeah. they were actually there's images if I'm if I remember correctly you absolutely remember people's you know they're charred Yep. You know, it's hard to talk about. So those bars were installed ostensibly as a safety measure, although, again, a fire inspector hadn't been into the upstairs lounge in They would have never allowed. Years. Like, why would a bar on a... These were, these were larger windows that would open from oh, the bottom. Oh, safety, safety in the form of people not falling out of the window. So that they would not fall out when they were dancing out of the window into Got the it. street. So these were large windows that if people may have taken a step backwards and didn't realize where they were, mm. they may have fallen out of that window because I assume on hot days... Those windows were probably right. opened, and, and but on yeah. the on the night of nights, unfortunately, uh, those who were penned into that fork far corner of the bar were not a, oftentimes unless if you were an incredibly thin person, they were you were unable to pry your way through those window bars. So in essence, this this bar, this gay bar, this oasis, this place where you had gone to meet lovers, meet friends, etc., and to be yourself, in essence, imprisoned them at the end in those final seconds, um, and let in. And led to their doom. It was it was awful. And so, a couple points, um, I, I guess, to to kind of bring up before we start talking about tinderboxes, and, and I guess there's a, there's more than a couple points. Sure. One is I just want to also take note that uh, this happened on June twenty fourth, nineteen seventy three. It was a Sunday night, right? And so, also just kind of pay homage because we're at fifty years right now of Stonewall. Oh, from Stonewall that happened on June eighth. Sure. If I June twenty eighth Ju- was it June twenty eighth? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, June twenty eighth. So right. it was yeah. So two events yeah. both in June. Sure. And I always wondered, 
was Pride Month selected specifically? I always assumed it was because generally of, yes, because it, of those two events, homage, or not because of the upstairs launch in homage to Stonewall. To Actually, Stonewall, the initial right. Pride parades for the first several years. Sorry to get all historical. No, no, uh, you're uh, a historian. Okay, That's were, fine. <laughs> um, were called Christopher Street Liberation Parades because they were because the, the Stonewall Rebellion. I like to call it the Stonewall Riots because it sounds more punk rock. But um, they took place on love that Christopher so Street in Greenwich Village in New York City. Um, and so the initial New York parade was the Christopher Street Parade. Uh, uh, that was the initial Pride Parade that was held the next year. R- a radical political event. The notion of out homosexuals marching in public, people forget about it. Now it's, it's a very consumer thing. Back then, that was a very political gesture to out yourself in that manner and to take such risk. The, the Los Angeles Pride Parade was called the Christopher Street West Parade. Huh. Um, New Orleans at that point had never seen a Pride Parade or a Pride event. It was sort of anathema to a city where most homosexuals lived in a kind of unspoken semi-closeted state. Right. So the idea that you're going to have a parade where you out yourself or that there's going to be somebody at a podium or speeches or things like that, unheard of at the time. But nationally, um, many cities, especially in 1973, and, and especially on that weekend, it was the, one of the last weekends of June um, in that year, were holding pride events. So there was a pride event in Chicago. There was a pride event in Pittsburgh. There was a pride event in Miami. There was a pride event. You can ma- imagine any city in the States except the upstairs lounge. Of, uh, sorry, except New Orleans. And in New Orleans, that was the one place really where recognition of pride and really the legacy of Stonewall had not yet touched because New Orleans had other traditions, other queer traditions that sort of overrode um, the burgeoning ripple of what was called gay liberation or gay radicalism that was taking over the rest of the country. And the, a big aspect of gay liberation was the notion of uh, aggressively attacking um, restrictive uh, essentially institutions, heterosexual institutions, and aggressively outing yourself, which was something that uh, queers in New Orleans would not do at that time period. Is it fair to say then that had there been a uh, a Pride event that weekend, that theoretically that the Upstairs Lounge fire may have not actually happened because gosh i've never even thought about that i mean you're talking about a vastly different city then where if there was a pride event you're talking um it probably would have happened at the upstairs lounge you're talking about in order for there to be a political infrastructure whereby there are enough out leaders and then out members of a political organization who are known to be gay or lesbian in town who then could organize and hold open meetings right, to right. then go to the, the city and get a parade, city, yeah. that would mean that there wouldn't be, in general, a set of people that weren't so internally conflicting, conflicted and self-hating. Um Self-hating, just, I just want to be clear, self-hating because of the... Because, because they were oppressed within themselves. Thank they, you. Yeah. They, all right, so the closet was so deep and dark in 1973, and especially in New Orleans, that uh, many individuals who identified um, as liking members of the same sex... Um, uh, believed theirs to be an individual burden, okay? So the, it's the phenomenon of DTMF, and you can let me know if I can't no. say this. It's don't touch me. Okay. Do, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can let me know if you yeah, don't yeah, want me yeah, to yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, but yeah. um, that that's the phenomenon of that was quite common in the 70s, actually it persists to this day, of the idea of someone in the boudoir uh, post-engaged in sexual activity becomes violent towards you after the act, 
um, because they want to say, I'm not like you. I'm not different. I'm sorry. I, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm different. You're the one that tricked me into this situation. I'm not gay. You're, you're, you're the one who tricked me into this gay scenario. And so that was quite commonplace where people were worried in this era when the closet was so deep and dark and when it was institutional, it was, it was society wide, right? So it wasn't just people think about the closet now as like, oh, I'm closeted. I haven't just come out to my family. I haven't come out to my community, etc. Back then, it, it involved criminalization, the fact that all of this activity was legal, illegal, which blanketed the whole notion of it. It also involved pathologization. So from in terms of psychiatric science that was understood at that time, homosexuality was considered to be a mental illness. Um, so all of those um, measures um, could work in an individual mind to make a person um, completely se- uh, self-hating to the and fact that-, that you would not, you even if you engaged sexually in homosexual behavior, perhaps you didn't identify as gay. Um, jump through those mental hoops now it's difficult back then it was actually quite commonplace and the people may have been married and have children because Mm -hmm. that was what society expected of them oh of course but of course they would identify otherwise identify as being right by today's standards they'd be identifying as gay all right and the fruit of those marriages bore children back then so there would be children trying to understand over time right the lie that their father sustained both towards them, right, and towards their mother. Um, and it was just, it was the one of the phrases that a lot of people talk about, and I have it in the, I could read it like a little section of the book where they talk about the nature of the closet. Good. Before you do, let me just say this. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIVLP. This is Nola Matters, Health is a Human Right radio show. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be talking to Robert, uh, Robert Fiesler. Sorry. Yep. Robert Fiesler, who is the acclaimed debut author of Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge, and The Rise of Gay Liberation. You can find more information about him at Robert Fiesler on Facebook. That's F-I-E-S-E-L-E-R, as well as Twitter and Instagram. He's at Word Bobby. Yeah. So um, this is a phrase, a gay publication called Vector, which was like a radical gay publication. I think it was publishing out of either New York or San Francisco, described the closet the way it used to work in 1966 thusly. So I'm quoting something now. We lie so that we may live, whether it is to our boss or the draft board or the civil service, we rarely can afford to divulge the simple truth of our homosexuality. But this is merely the beginning. Lying begets lying. We have to cover up for so many of our activities and doings that we find ourselves in a mire of untruths. Um, and I should say also, there's a reason, right, besides, there's the re- a reason why they're lying. There's a reason why, why one must conceal themselves in this era. There were few activities less popular in the 60s and 70s than gay behavior, than homosexuality. When you look at values and opinion polls from that time, it might shock It was difficult to find them because most values and opinion polls wouldn't Didn't even include it because yeah. it was It was such an to be, obvious answer. Right, right, right. right. But it, it was, was seven out of ten Americans believed homosexuality to be always wrong. Yeah. Very few things fared 
fared worse in our moral assessments. Jeez, Communism, yeah. I think, uh, which were viewed almost on par. A, per, a form of personal corruption was homosexuality. A form of public corruption and political corruption was communism. Right. Oftentimes in 50s Red Scare, Lavender Scare eras, you would see in the hunt for communists, they would end up outing homosexuals too, and that right. would be part of it. Right. I mean, I think even Roy Coyne, Roy, 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 Cohen. Roy Cohen was was gay. And I think he died of HIV uh, as well. And he was did. Actually, he was actually considered, I think Trump considers him to be a, uh, a tutor uh, or a mentor. Mm-hmm. And it actually was somebody who was right there uh, wonder, with part think, of the... Yeah. And oftentimes when, when, when in his, early in his administration, when he was struggling with his lawyers, mm-hmm. he was struggling to line up people on a, right. that he viewed to be... He often would ask, where's my Roy, Roy Cohen? Right, I think yeah. he views him to be the ideal lawyer and also the ideal sort of homosexual. Right. Oh, to be closeted in shame. Rather in general, than be out in a proud, right? In general, yes. I think that he prefers that way of handling yeah. it. So who's I, out in his administration? I can't think of any. Huh. That's, yeah, I know. That's, that's, I've, I've, wow. I've I delved even, into this. Whoa. <laughs> I haven't even actually thought about that. So so the, the upstairs lounge actually, so I want to kind of bring this back to, to a Stonewall as well. So mm. I'm going I'm gonna, to I'm sure. kind of tease between the, or yeah, let's go, go back be, to parallel be between the yeah. two of them. So when you look at the upstairs lounge and you go and you see, it's now called the Jejuni Jiju, or Jamuni. The Gemini? Gemini yeah. bar is what's there now, right? Yeah. Charters in, in, in Same Iberville. family. It was the same bar actually. So it was owned by the same, it was the guy's father, Jimmy huh. Masachi. Really? Oh, owns it now, <laughs> Jimmy Masachi's father. Oh, wow. the Gemini at that point. So it Got stayed it. in the, it same, stayed in the family. same family. So when you um, so when you go there, right outside of the bar, there's actually a plaque on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk about that plaque for sure. a quick second. Um, because there are a couple names. So it has all the names of the men that died in yep, that all bar. all the victims. All the victims. But would it has three, I think, that say unknown. Unidentified. Unidentified. Yep. And so do you want to maybe take us back to what it was like in 1973, how a family did not want to there was a shame sure. as to having somebody who was gay in your family today mm-hmm. by 2019 standards thankfully that doesn't exist anymore but what yeah. was it like in 1970 that families didn't even want to pick up or identify the bodies oh well certainly so um well if you were at, if you were semi-closeted out but living a happy life in in new orleans in 1973 um Odds are uh, you had run away to New Orleans to start a new chapter or phase of your life. This was quite commonplace. A, a good example of this would be uh, one of the upstairs lounge victims named Reverend Bill Larson. Um, so he was actually not born Bill Larson. He became Bill Larson when he came to New Orleans. He was born William Roscoe Larson, slightly spe- huh. different spelling, but he went by Roscoe in his hometown. When he realized he was gay... Um, and he realized he wanted to live a cer- in a certain way um, so that so that he could find happiness and joy and eventually so that he could make peace with himself as God, embrace the sort of religious professional lifestyle he wanted to. He ran away, ventured to the queer capital of the South is what New Orleans was called at that time. And in his new chapter, right, he found other men like himself and he found various havens and oases where he could engage in in this in the behavior that that had would bring he knew would bring him companionship and joy and eventually fill the hole that had been so missing in the rest of his life and so many men who were gay who fled to new orleans at this time period did not wish to be found by members of their 
family or by aspect by their other lives that they had left behind, which were so negative, um, weighted down which, with such sorrows. Um, so oftentimes people t- would either legally change their name or go by aliases and, and mechanisms like that. Um, which which complicated matters for identifying upstairs lounge victims, as you could imagine, when there are there is such a mass of death. There were 29 that were dead within minutes inside the bar, three more doomed to agonizing death deaths in a hospital a burn ward. hospital yep. in the burn ward. So um, those were known, the, the individuals who were patients in the burn ward. Um, but there was a real struggle, and oftentimes, especially when uh, the, the individuals who died close to the close to the bars. Um, the metal bars that burned so them—they were charred so bad. They and I'll—I'm not—I'm not going to go intensely gory, but they in a pile uh, of bodies that was described by the coroner who'd seen everything. This guy named Carl Rabin as the one of the worst things he'd ever seen. Um, and so, uh, f- picking that pile apart was oftentimes a guessing game, and then from there trying to to identify. Uh, Hair was burned off, skin was burned off, right? And so, sometimes I mean, dental was all that dental was left. Dental was right? all that was left, or or artifacts like hotel room keys, or sometimes the metal on pieces Rings of jewelry or, was still right, available, right. or things like that. So it was a real struggle to to, to attempt to identify in general. Um, and it's remarkable, and it, actually, several of the gay uh, leaders of the gay liberation movement that came to New Orleans in the days and um, after the upstairs lunch fire to manage this emergency for the local community agreed that it was remarkable that the coroner ended up identifying positively 29 of the 32 victims. But um, some of those were last-minute IDs, whereby a reticent friend who was closeted himself would have to step forward to ID the person so that it wouldn't so that that memory that, is so that an individual right, wouldn't be, would be um, honored would would be honored and and would not be declared an unidentified victim and then become property of the state and then go where unidentified victims go which is potter's fields for indigents right um, <laughs> and the final 3 um as the case went, as the case was, um, did not have individuals who stepped forward uh, to claim them. Ultimately, um, even through th- though there were several last minute attempts to ident- identify people, a guy named Ferris LeBlanc uh, was identified at the last minute by an anonymous phone call. Wow! Um, and so he was at least uh, saved from saved from a nameless death. But unfortunately, the last three. Uh, could not be named. Did, did you hear or did you read the story about how there was a family in California that believes that their yeah their, their loved one yeah are, this are, is are, the LeBlanc family. Oh, okay. This is the LeBlanc family with Fer, uh, Ferris LeBlanc, and so they they discovered a few years actually as as upstairs lounge scholarship has spread across the country, they Googled this and read it, and um, Marilyn LeBlanc, who is Ferris's younger sister, has uh, made it her mission. To in, to try to find Ferris where he's buried because they ended up because yeah, they field in the Potter's Field in New Orleans like East it's a decrepit yeah. it's a decrepit field where yeah. I hate to tell you but that's where in the little uh, across the um, gravel strip uh, where uh, where the where the that bifurcates the sort of area um, there's an entire little lot where um, city organizations store their portalettes for major events. It's very disrespectful. There's no signage. There's not anything. I'm, 
I, I wish I had a more positive no, thing I know, to say no, no, about no, no, this. No, I know. Yeah, but I, she's I, made it her mission to try, attempt to locate it precisely where they buried him in this pottery field. I know those field. records are diff- I was reading the story in Noel.com. Yeah, those, mm-hmm. the records were difficult to find. They're just, they were lost, so it's an I think ongoing they, they struggle. I even like a Katrina thing. I think that... Was there something that, that records what, could have been flooded during Katrina? It's possible. Or? That's actually a that that's a frequent citation. So when okay, because I was just wondering. Yeah, okay. When people do give you the, scholars and academics frequently hear the Katrina c- excuse, and I know that that's valid a lot of times, but sometimes it isn't. No, I, I hear you. Um, I hear where, you. Where oftentimes some I've found things in the course of researching my book that were supposedly lost to that were non favorable to the city or state and supposedly lost to, to the, Katrina. To Katrina, but you found it. Uh, I found it anyway. Um, but uh, in the case of uh, of Ferris, they're still that family's still fighting with Louisiana bureaucracies and uh, with the cemetery uh, to try to exhume this honorably discharged World War II veteran who had landed at Normandy, helped beat back the Nazi okay, County really? Offensive wow. at the Battle of the Bulge. It's wow, his military no record idea. is amazing, really? and uh, they wanted to exhume him and bring him home for a hero's burial with a flag folding service, and they are <laughs> unable to. Um, thus far, they their their efforts have spanned now uh, almost four years. Um, yeah. So let me ask you this because I know we're we're starting to kind of get short on time here. Sure. I, I I again just kind of going back to Stonewall. So mm-hmm. so hear me out. So after I I don't I don't the the response from the local administration was horrible and mm-hmm. the terrible jokes. We don't need to go into any of them because I don't want to breathe any oxygen oh, sure. into some of the stuff that was said. But mm-hmm. I, I want to skip forward to the fact that they could not find a church to hold any service. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I want to talk about if it was at the was it a United it was a and I what I specifically want to talk about was the service and then I want to talk about how in the days whenever reporters were out front where mm-hmm. you had a lot of folks that were queer people would take a backdoor entrance and sometimes then, yes right and then how this time folks walked out yeah. the front door and some people say that that kind of gave rise to the gay liberation movement in the some south some say I think it was a powerful moment that um so uh there was a struggle uh leaders of the the burgeoning gay liberation movement heard the cry from New Orleans within hours and a guy named Troy Perry in Los Angeles who's a very famous queer minister uh, founding pastor of the Metropolitan Community Church this guy named Morris Kite who was then uh, he's from LA but then he was in New York City this very famous gay activist named Morty Manford they all descended upon New Orleans to try to manage this emergency one of the most important things they wanted to do was to try to find a French Quarter church that would hold a public memorial uh, memorial service for the victims of the fire um, they were repelled by Lutheran churches. They were repelled by the Catholic Church, which denied them the ability to hold a service in St. Louis Cathedral, the Holy Basilica. They were d- repelled by a Baptist church. Eventually, they found uh, a friend a, a friend, and sort of a religious ally in St. Mark's Methodist Church, which is local, located on Governor Nichols and uh, Rampart Street. And that church had actually served an important role during the racial civil rights movement as well. Um, so, uh, it was about a week after the fire, uh, actually it was the following, it was, I believe July 1st, it was the following Sunday, so seven days after the fire had transpired, um, Troy Perry, who was then the most uh, queer minister, then the most visible, out, radical, gay American, uh, there was, stood at the pulpit of a French Quarter church, um, and gave a sermon about the upstairs lounge victims to a crowd of about 200, again, 
carefully semi-closeted gay and lesbian individuals, uh, many of whom knew the victims or were survivors of the fire themselves. Um, and when it came time to uh, leave the, the church, uh, Troy Perry returned to the pulpit and he let the, he let the, it be known to the, cry, uh, to the crowd that there are cameras that are gathered outside the front door on Rampart Street, um, and that if any of you do not want to be outed to your families or to your jobs um, in the in the act of exiting this funeral, this memorial service, there is a he called an escape hatch or a back exit that you could go out a side. It's a side door. I followed the way down in the church that'll take you out onto Governor Nichols Street, from which you can then slink back into the uh, into the quarter. Um, and there was there was a stir. Many people were talking and saying that um, we, people should physically remove the cameras. A few people accused Troy Perry, who was then a radical political gay person, of trying to arrange a stunt. And then a person who, at, to this to this day, has only been out identified it as an out butch lesbian, stood up and said, "I came in the front door, and I'm sure as hell leaving that way." And everybody else kind of st- – and she just started marching out the front door, and everyone else stood up and followed her. Um, and they went out into the bright sunlight of Rampart Street, willing to out themselves to the cameras in this act. It was so radical, and for years – People tried to say that the cameras weren't there in New Orleans, especially over time. And when I started researching this book, people kept trying to tell me, well, there were no cameras. This was just something Troy Perry was trying to do to make people a gay act, to bring gay activism to New Orleans. There weren't any cameras. There wasn't really any risk. And then I ended up working with the Upstairs Lounge documentarian, Royd Anderson, who had done a documentary called The Upstairs Lounge Fire, a very lovely documentary here. He went and found (laughs) the camera log of the individual um, with WDSU who had sat in front of the French Quarter Church and they logged where the camera was in the time that verifies the fact that the cameras had been there and that queer folk in the 70s, when there was so much to be risked by being seen in this way, marched in front of those lights and in front of TV, those cameras. TV cameras. Incredible, yes. TV cameras, and there were also, there were reporters do you from have Times any, Picayune. Do you have any, is the there... The footage? Yeah. Um, Royd is still searching that out, so he's still God, looking for the tin incredible, can huh? when you see that footage. But what I, that what I think is important from that moment, and also as a lesson of history, is here is over time, up until the point that the camera long was discovered, people had tried to take the liberating moment away from those who had actually walked out the front door. They tried to lessen it and soften it and gaslight those people over time till, uh, to the point where a few of them, when I interviewed them, at least told me, I'm not sure anymore if the cameras were there because so many of people have told me they weren't. And then when I would call them later and I told them about this camera log, several of them wept. I'm sure. I'm sure they couldn't because believe it was a huge relief. I am sure because they realized that moment was real. They've probably started to doubt themselves over time. I mean, that's the whole point of gaslighting. Mm-hmm. You know, what an amazing gift to give to somebody to know that they were there. Okay, so now I want to talk about it in, in lieu mm. of, of Stonewall, about sure. that liberating moment of yeah. how in, how on June 28th, um, a couple of years before 
then you had a bunch uh, and I'm I'm talking to a historian so I'm going to sure. not <laughs> so essentially Stonewall gay bar in the village sure. uh, uh, subject to multiple raids I'm mm-hmm. sure and then one night a raid happened on June 24th and there was pushback there was that moment of no sure. more right and I see Those that were, moment yeah, the patrons who were about to be arrested fought back right and I see that moment and I'm not a historian mm-hmm. and and so and and so please Correct me here, mm-hmm. but I see that moment of pushback not unlike that moment of what happened uh, with with this service where people I, walked. I out. think it could have been. There's been a real effort, and I uh, to, to to posit that um, that the upstairs lounge fire was a quote unquote Southern Stonewall. I don't actually think that worked, and some of it was because I think the qual- the closet for years swallowed up the upstairs lounge legacy in New Orleans, such that in the 80s nobody talked about this fire anymore and it was actually only in the 90s that the legacy started to be revived and it was by ragtag activist uh, individuals who moved to new orleans heard the whispers and then wonders why aren't people talking about this story why don't we have memorials hmm. why isn't there huh. a monument which only went down in 2003 actually That's that bronze that plaque? plaque that 32 uh, inch yeah. by 30 i'm weird i measured it bronze <laughs> plaque that was important that it's there advertising and educating people on a daily basis. And if you look at Upstairs Lounge scholarship, all, most all of it uh, that, that's been essentially nationally distributed, um, is, you could post-date by the fact that this memorial, this plaque is there. And, and actually, most everyone who's written a book, made a documentary, done a musical, because there's two of yes, them now, yeah, yeah. describe walking by and seeing the plaque and reading it and being moved. Right. That wasn't the case for decades. Whereas with Stonewall, Stonewall was an immediate political effect that had national import, where it rippled across the country. And then gay liberation organizations, right? The, G, the Gay Liberation Front was sort of birthed um, or really got its traction out of the Stonewall, right? And it became this um, rally cry for political recruitment. And there were gay liberation fronts that were in Chicago, and they were in Denver, and they were in Los Angeles, and they were all these different places. Um, members of gay liberation that came to New Orleans, such as Troy Perry, Morris Kite, Morty Manford, wanted the upstairs lounge to be so important. And they really tried for a period of about six months or so. What ultimately doomed the legacy of the fire in about in that those little intervening years right after the tragedy occurred was the fact that New Orleans was not interested in, in having this conversation continue. It was viewed as an embarrassment by the um, by the straight community and it, uh, and uh, and a political hot potato by ultra liberal mayors and governors etc in this in the state and uh, city but but also it was viewed as something that was going to cause more trouble in a gay community that just wanted business as usual to continue. Um, I have something I could read if you want, or, if, or are we running out of time? Yeah, I was going to also quickly just tell us. I had two questions because we are running out of time. Sure, can you tell us about your book? Sure. Like what's unique about the book in yeah. terms of the scholarship, and then I also wanted to talk about your Daily Beast article, which oh, okay. like which was amazing because yeah. I was like just sitting one day just kind of reading the news on my phone. And I'm like, oh, cool, here's an upstairs lounge, and then I saw it was by you, and sure. so I just was wondering, just your scholarship is different sure. or unique in from the other scholarships that we've seen. Which what's I think unique a lot about Tinderbox? There were so many wor- have been so many worthy um, tellings of this uh, of this event. Mine takes Tinderbox, uh, the untold 
old story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation, takes a look at, uh, at the tragedy from a national context and asks the question about what did upstairs lounge fire, the upstairs lounge fire mean for queer America? Um, and how did its legacy start? I, uh, it, 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 essentially, a lot of the book is the story of the laying of the plaque, if you really look at it weirdly enough. I, I, I stood in front of the upstairs lounge plaque in 2014 when I was starting to write this book, and I just asked myself, how is this here? How is this here after so many forces tried to stifle this story, how did, did, did this memorial end up occurring here after all these years? And so what this book does is it really looks at the fact that the upstairs lounge is like one of the great, what journalists would call a blue whale events, which are, are supposed to be mythical, but it's this event that sounds and sinks in the past and that it dwells unseen for years and decades. And then it resurfaces at a point in the present day, singing its sad, strange jarring song of the past in a way that that almost evokes a lesson uh, about how things were and why things can't be that way again. Um, And my book really, I I think, I I, I hope, it it tries to do that work where it tries to utilize an active, it shows how an active memory can be an active protest. If you want me to get into, I can show, do you want me to do individual revelations that are in the book or things like that? Well, hold on, can can I have you back on air? Sure. Okay, seriously, like, because you are a amazing wealth of information. Oh, that's so nice of you. So let's just do because like, we we have to wrap up. So let's do a quick reading, sure, and then we'll wrap up and all. We'll get you back on air and we'll book a, a time over the summer sure. to talk more about stuff because I think that the work that you do is really amazing. And what we do at WHIV is really make sure that the voices and the communities you particularly represent are out. And then very, very, very uh, uh, make sure that everybody's aware of this history and sure. uh, how important this history is. Yeah. So we'll do one quick reading and then we'll start to turn the uh, the uh, uh, booth over. I definitely want to have you back in over the summer, too, to, so we can really dive into the Daily Beast article. Because the idea of, of, of race, and this is the next, the, the idea of race was so important. Mm-hmm. Hang on one second. Sure. Do you want me to just dive into the reading? All right. This is a submission. I'll set the scene. This is after the upstairs lounge fire, and we're dealing with the aftermath on the street, where many of the individuals who had been survivors of this terrible event had only had seconds to get out of this fl- this uh, this gay bar that had burned uh, to s- almost become engulfed in flames within minutes while they were in there. They'd only had 30 seconds to decide which way to turn. Um, and some of them are now dealing with the fact that they have gotten outside of the bar, but they're not certain if their friends or lovers are still inside. So this is Chapter 5, Mayhem, Dusk, June 24th, 1973. Barreling down a stairwell that plunged from the rooftop and the secret back exit of a burning gay bar, Ronnie Rosenthal emerged into a New Orleans street teeming with sirens. Ronnie guided Ricky Everett, a fellow fire survivor, from spot to spot as flyer trucks plowed through taxis to reach the blaze. Cloaked in soot and human cremains, Ricky was unable to see for the tears clotting his eyes. Quote, they had all that space for people lying there on the street, recalled Ricky, quote, and they were pulling the burning clothes off of them. By some strange fate, neither Ricky nor Ronnie turned the corner onto charters to witness Ricky's best friend, Pastor Bill Larson, in his final repose, seared to the windowsill, 
of the upstairs lounge, one floor above them. Closeted church deacon Joseph Courtney Craighead did, however, he did so and became dumbstruck. Indeed, Courtney struggled to inhale and exhale alongside Rusty Crinton and the other fire survivors who, by some miracle or some curse, were forced to look up at carnage also intended for them. Their guilt was sudden and uncontrollable. Wow, that is a... uh, How do you... How do you? <laughs> that is really a beautiful piece of of work there, uh, Robert Fleeser, um, who uh, is the author uh, of uh, the uh, book uh, Tenderbox, uh, which is the untold story of the upstairs lounge and fire and the rise of gay liberation. You can find more information about about Robert. Uh, his Facebook page is Robert Fiesler, uh, Twitter at Word Bobby, and Instagram at Word Bobby. Um, the idea of the book that you wrote, and I love the idea of. Kind Kind of being able to document gay liberation here mm. uh, in southern Louisiana and in New Orleans is great. I think that the Daily Beast article is really important because what you did was you added an element of of race and mm-hmm. and at the time the the lack of race equity at the time. Oh, and, certainly and within you, the gay community, within the gay community, and documenting that lack that lack of race equity mm-hmm. and some of the words that you used were new words for me oh, to sure, describe certainly. somebody who was gay and black, gay and white, or what have you. We are super super duper out of time. Right. I promise to bring you back on uh, during the summer, sure. and then I would love to talk more about the Daily Beast article. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. And Health as a Human Right is coming up in just one minute. Before we get started, uh, WHIV is the only community radio station in the city dedicated to human rights and social justice. All of our hosts and guests and DJ, our DJs and volunteers were able to provide quality programming with your support. So please consider becoming a member of WHIV uh, by donating any amount that you wish. That could be a buck five dollars one dollar whatever it takes we appreciate your donations because all donations to whiv are tax deductible we also have a new lineup of of clothes uh as well as swag please visit our website at whiv 